Hello listeners and welcome to the second episode of Uni Talks. In this episode, Stella from London is our host. Stella, who is hoping to study zoology at university, interviews Robert Eaglestone, a professor of contemporary literature at Royal Holloway in London. Also in this episode, our agony aunts Anne-Marie and Paul will be back answering all of your questions around applications, admissions tests and interviews. Now over to Stella. Hi, I'm Stella. Welcome to the Uni Talks podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. Please note, Oyster, contactless payment cards and freedom passes are not valid beyond the next station. My name is Stella Jones, I'm 17 and I go to Camden School for Girls. We're on the train on the way to Egham to see Robert Eagleston at Royal Holloway University. I live in Camden, so I live near my school, and I have two younger twin sisters, which is quite annoying. They gang off on me sometimes. Today I woke up this morning and I remembered that I had to do this podcast, which made me feel quite excited because I got to miss my chemistry lesson. I felt quite nervous, but also at the same time very excited. It's quite a grey, rainy day outside, but that isn't going to dishearten me. I'm still excited. There are quite a few trees and fields and things outside, so you can tell we're getting further away from London. I'm quite excited to meet Robert Eaglestone because I've never really had a face-to-face encounter with an academic before, and it'll be really nice to find out what it's like and what he does. So we're now on the Royal Holloway University campus. The buildings are all quite compact, they're all sort of reds and browns. It's quite nice and comforting, the fact that they're not sort of looming over you. We're just walking up the steps now into the International Building, where we're about to meet Robert Eagleston. You can see some Chinese writing on the wall. Seems all quite international. There are lots of posters up about studying abroad. Come in. Hi, I'm Stella. Nice Hi, to meet Stella. You. Nice to meet you. Do you mind introducing yourself and just telling us what you do? And sure. Um, my name is Robert Eaglestone. I'm professor of contemporary literature and thought in the Department of English at Royal Holloway University of London. I work on the border of literature and philosophy, so I'm what's called a literary theorist. I work a lot on Holocaust and genocide studies, and I'm interested in teaching and how teaching works. And somehow those things in my head make a whole, but I see from the outside they don't necessarily. How did you become interested in the sort of things that you do? Rather embarrassingly, I was hiding in the library in our school, and um, I found a book by Salman Rushdie called Midnight's Children, which I sort of read. And it was so amazing, I used to hide it in the library so I could go and find it again. And it was like history and philosophy and literary form all in a, in a sort of package. And it was like, oh my God, look what you can do. And it wasn't boring like English at school can be. It was like some completely different kind of thing. So while I was really into English for sort of, sort of boring kind of reasons, I always knew there was something amazing just 
under the surface, which would explode somehow. So I did English at university, and one of the things that was happening in the subject at the time in the 80s was a sort of revolution, which was called literary theory. And that was really the influx into English, which had been quite a traditional discipline, of all sorts of ideas coming from politics and philosophy and sociology and history, all sorts of new ideas. And I was a very normal kind of student at Manchester, where you're applying to as well. And in my third year, this theory stuff suddenly ignited me. Uh, I, I can't really ex express it better than that. And it sort of blew my mind. And I went to a master's degree in literary theory after that, and then did a doctorate in a, in a particular aspect of it. So what did you do at A-level? That is a really good question. I did English, history and geography. Um, and I got an A for geography and a B for the two others, even for English, mm -hmm. which is a bit embarrassing. <laughs> so I, uh, did I enjoy my A-levels? It's quite hard to disentangle it from being, from being your age, all the things that are going on mm -hmm. in your life. But when I was your age, you know, we were, oh, I don't know, you were falling in love and having arguments, all those kind of things, and it was all quite stressful. Mm. So I don't know how people do A-levels. They should be let off and come back two years later. And how did you find your degrees? Did you enjoy them or did you find them quite challenging? I think that, speaking to you especially, who's about to go to university, I think the students these days, the student body you're going to join, work much harder than we did in the 80s. You're much more anxious, you work harder, you take things more seriously. And that can mean you're a little bit less intellectually ambitious. So when I went, I didn't work as hard as I could have done. And I was happy to take risks with my essays and so on. And sometimes they were catastrophically bad. <laughs> uh, and sometimes they, they weren't. But the thing that I found about university, most of all, was the sort of freedom to follow up what you want. So Rousseau says that the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau says the best way of education is to take a child to a library and show them. And, and I felt that that was what university was like. And you can just go and see all these books and follow up whatever you're interested in. And, and that I found, that I still find is the most amazing kind of thing. I think that's really interesting what you've said about less freedom and how nowadays students are more structured. Like if I'm writing an English essay, I the primary thing I focus on is, is my structure right? Am I going to get the maximum amount of marks? Not I'm not being very adventurous. And I think, yeah, that's definitely a very good point. I think we can move on now to talk about your, your, your work and the things you do. What was your journey like to becoming an academic? And did you find it more challenging or was it fairly easy? It was really, really hard. Um, academia is a, is a really hard profession uh, at the moment in the humanities uh, and has been for 20 or 30 years. It's always been underfunded. It's hard to get a job. Um, you have to work very hard and young academics stay even harder. People can publish one or two books and still not get permanent jobs, uh, which is terrible. Um, was it challenging? Yeah, it was very challenging, but because you're doing proper intellectual work, if you're a scientist, you're doing a, doing a PhD, you're part of a big team and you're pushing forward the, the edges of scientific knowledge, which must be amazing. And if you're a, a humanist, you're like somebody rowing out of a this will be like when you go to university, you row, you row out of your little, your berth in the harbour and you row out of the harbour. No one can see, you can't hear on the podcast, but I'm doing an imitation of rowing. You row out of your podcast and then you row out onto the big ocean and you are genuinely, whatever you do for a doctorate, you're genuinely engaging with, with the ideas that, that are, the ideas our species have. 
which sounds very grandiose, and you're dealing with the tiniest, tiniest little bit, but you are still dealing with it. And it's an amazing kind of experience. It's quite frightening and also really exciting at the same time. So yeah, I don't know what could be more challenging in a way. Yeah, and then academic life is quite hard. So I work 50 or 60 hours a week. I mean, that's, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's a tough job. Can you talk us through your sort of average day here at Royal Holloway? It's quite hard to say what an average, what an average day kind of is. I mean, my job is teaching research and administration. And the administration varies doing all sorts of different running things. Teaching is teaching, and the research is me sitting in my pyjamas trying to understand a paragraph in a book. All sounds quite interesting, though. It's <laughs> absolutely great, yeah. What do you find most challenging about what you do? The, the most challenging thing is the, is the, the thing itself, is the, is the research, really. That's what, I mean, what makes universities different from schools is that everybody in a university is kind of a student. So even the professors are still writing essays and discovering new things and challenging themselves. And so there's a very famous image from the philosopher Kant who talks about the bird that's flying. And the bird that's flying, and the podcast can't see again, but I'm flapping my hands like a bird. The bird that's flying says, oh, if only it wasn't for this air and this wind, how much easier I'd fly. But in fact, the air and the wind is what's enabling the bird to fly in the first place. So that the challenge is the, is the, dealing, with the, the dealing with the ideas and thinking. Did you become an academic straight away or did you have other jobs? I really became an academic straight away, but I had done lots and lots and lots of other jobs because I was broke. <laughs> and in fact, I, I tried to make a point in working in different sorts of jobs to see what they were like. So what's it like working as a hotel porter? What's it like working in a nightclub bar? What's it like working for a used car salesman? All these sort of things. Did you find that any of them helped prepare you for this job that you've got now? No. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what did help me more than anything else, okay, and you are going to laugh at me, where when I was at school I played Dungeons and Dragons a lot and Dungeons and Dragons taught me more about teaching than anything else because it's about, it's about doing something collectively together and improvising and they're using their heads and okay little dice and little figures, okay, if you're the dungeon master it's about control of information and making and directing it and making it work and encouraging people and making sure everyone's involved, which has actually taught me a great deal about teaching. What do you think the most important purpose of literature is? If you had to choose one. <sighs> what do you think it is? I don't know, that's why I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a famous philosopher called Jacques Derrida describes it as a strange, a strange institution that really it has no rules to it. So when you read a novel, okay, it can do anything it wants. Like a history book's got to have a purpose and a recipe book has to have recipes in, but, but a work of art, a, a, a novel or a poem, can do what it wants and has got no rules to it. It's all the messy stuff all around. I'm waving my hands around in a big circle, okay, that, that can't be pinned down and can't be given a kind of strict purpose. And that's the way what makes it interesting. I think you mentioned it earlier, but just to clear up to anyone listening, what is literary theory? How does, in your biology, how does theory work? Well, if you have a theory, you sort of suggest something and then you have to do several experiments and tests and lots of work to make sure that that theory is correct and then you can adjust it and it becomes, if you prove it, then it becomes something other than a theory, but a theory is just a, an idea that may or may not be true. In the 20s and 30s, 
there was a, a Russian thinker called Vladimir Prop who said some very obvious thing. He said that in fairy tales, there only are like a certain number of roles or things that people can do. And we all know basically that all the Disney princesses are basically the same character. And that the experiment would be reading fairy stories and seeing if that fitted. And so that was so different from what other people, from old fashioned criticism, it created a kind of idea of being a theory. So really what literary theory is really, is just different sorts of texts, sometimes they're about literature, sometimes they're not, which we can use to, to illuminate or help us read with literary texts. So for example, Sigmund Freud, famous uh, inventor of psychoanalysis at the beginning of the 20th century, we can read those texts alongside literary texts to see what sort of things it's kind of telling us. And we don't have to believe the theories are true to think to find them interesting. Okay, so again with Hamlet that you're doing, to think about the intensity of Hamlet's relationship with his mother. Okay, is you know, Freud's work draws attention to that. It helps us think about Hamlet and Gertrude, how boys think about their mothers, how they relate to stepfathers, all these complicated kinds of things that help us read Hamlet in a different kind of way. Okay, well, I've done some some research before. <laughs> I noticed that lots of your work focuses on the Holocaust. Why do you think it's still important to write about this? The Second World War and the Holocaust is a, is a sort of watershed event. Uh, it kind of mar it, it creates the, the shape of the world we're in today. And that shape is not just sort of political and technological and economic, but also cultural and personal. So trying to understand the, the huge impact of those terrible events and of the war is where trying to understand what sort of people we are. Do you think literature and ethics intersect and if so how? My PhD was about this really uh, and I spent years and years thinking about it and I don't know. <laughs> so on the one hand we learn how to behave and who we are and what other people like even if we can't understand them from stories, from films and books and so on. On the other hand you know, stories are just stories. They're not the same as being in the world. And if I said to you, I behaved in such and such a way because that's how Hamlet did it, you would think I was a bit weird. I, I, I suppose I think that the, the, the stories we read shape our how we are in the world. And after all, we've only got stories in a way. They shape how we are in the world. And that shaping itself leads us to behave in certain sorts of ways. Aristotle says that political argument comes through logos, ethos, and pathos. So logos is like rational argument. Ethos is about how we imagine ourselves to be. What sort of community are we? And pathos is about feeling. And literature can do all of all three of those. But just the way I've described it, you can hear that it's, literature seems to be much more about ethos. What sort of community are we? And pathos, what kind of feeling do we have? thinking about those in literature is a way of thinking about literature and ethics, I think. How do you think literature will change in the future? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, the real answer is that nobody knows. And one of the great things about literature is it makes these um, strange jumps into new ways of seeing itself and seeing us and how things work. I mean, I think we can say some things. So, you know, novels like Ulysses that were banned in the UK originally are now a staple of English degree courses, but it's taken literally tens and tens of years to try and decades to try and understand 
what's happening in this novel or why it's so important or what change it has made. Uh, and one of the things we learn that all the time is about how literature reuses stuff from the past, how it's new, how it's about new sorts of concerns, how it's constantly pushing taboos or not pushing taboos. And I think that's one of the, the marks of a critic is constantly trying to think about what's, what's new and why is what's new interesting and why is what's new important. What A-levels would you recommend current students to do if they're interested in sort of your subject areas? English literature, I guess. And I think that all sorts of A-levels are really useful for it. Before this interview started, you talked about the things you learnt in biology. Okay, so English helps you with biology, which is interesting in itself. But it's also true that biology can help you think about English. For example, at the moment, there's a real interest in what's called animal studies. And obviously, biology and zoology is going to be really crucial for helping understand understand that. What about undergraduate degrees? Are there any asides from English that cover similar topics? A thing that I, I that I really like that's changed at undergraduate level in English is has been a huge boom in creative writing courses. When I was a student, one of the lecturers said to me, "Oh, he said to Robert, to to um to really understand a sonnet, you've got to write one." And I was just amazed by that. I thought, oh, I, I can't write a sonnet. I'm a, you know, I'm just an English student in my second year. I want to be able to write a sonnet. And, um, but of course, he was absolutely right. If you understand how to do something, what's really going on about something, you have to do it. What would you recommend a student who's interested in your subject should do and read. how should they? They should read a lot and they should read things they like to read. Do you have any books that you'd recommend? Uh, I want to say all of them. Uh, do I have books to recommend? Um, I just finished teaching uh, the Argonauts, which is uh, mentioned it a little bit early on. A Girl is a Half Made Thing by uh, by McBride, which is about um, it's a wonderful but also heartbreaking kind of novel. You know, I, I'm tempted to say that people should go into a bookshop and browse around or a library to find something that grabs them and then read that. Maybe I'll rephrase the question then. Do you uh, think there are any that are books that are sort of essential for you to read before you do a undergraduate degree in, say, English? No. There's no books that are essential because there are so many books. What I want people to do is just to read really widely. You know, there's lots of things to read uh, and your passion and enthusiasm and interest are shaped by those sorts of reading. If you like a writer, you should read the writers that have influenced her. So what are you working on now? I've just produced another version of my textbook called Doing English, which is for A-level students and first-year university students. That came out this summer. But I'm working really on, on two projects. The first one is about, it's called The Resurgent Past. It's about the ways in which contemporary fiction uses the past. So we know the past, everyone always argues about the past, and we see it with um, Donald Trump or with the Brexit stuff. That's about all about arguing about the past. And But I think that something deeper and more profound has happened, which is that how we understand not what happened in the past, but how we understand what the past itself is in relation to us has changed. And literature is a way of thinking about that. So that's one project. And then I'm also working on a woman called Hannah Arendt particularly, spent her time a lot of time rethinking about and reworking Plato and Aristotle. And from that, I am halfway through writing a book, reading Plato and Aristotle as if they were literature rather than as if they were simply works of philosophy. 
because philosophers say, oh, their argument is this, but very often ignore the, the form and style in which the argument is made. That sounds very interesting. We've just finished the interview of Robert Eaglestone and now I'm sat in the Student Union in Royal Holloway University. I found that quite, quite exciting, less scary than I was expecting. I definitely would like to read more about literary theory because I hadn't actually heard about that before today and I think it does sound really interesting. He was saying how it sort of exploded in front of him and he just had to carry on studying it because it was so interesting to him, I think that is quite an, like an inspiration to me to actually go and explore more about it. But I think the thing that stuck out most is when I asked him a question and he said now it's more strict and I've got the mentality of oh 25% AO2, 25% AO3 rather than being more experimental and like trying out new things. I have to sort of stick to boxes but I think that can be changed. I'm definitely looking forward to uni now and I'm looking forward to having similar experiences and having my own experiences. Next you'll be hearing from our admissions agony aunts Anne-Marie and Paul. Anne-Marie and Paul both work at King's College London in the admissions department. Paul is the Director of Admissions and Anne-Marie is Director of Widening Participation. They'll be answering questions that you've sent in about applying to university. Hi, my name's Paul Toulon. I'm the Director of Admissions at King's College London. I grew up in Romford, just outside of London, and I studied economics at the University of Cambridge, but I also studied for a part-time degree at the Open University. I'm a West Ham fan and very proud of that fact. Hello, I'm Anne-Marie. I'm the Director of Widening Participation at King's College London. I was the first in my family to go on to higher education, a prat. Oh, God. Yeah, definitely that. Uh, <laughs> You're definitely a prat. I am a prat. We, we are, are the, the Admissions, Admissions Agony Ants. So welcome to this week's episode, which is on UCAS applications, interviews and admissions tests. All right, the first question we have from a student is, how do you show passion for your subject? So it's quite limited, to be honest, um, because most universities will only see your UCAS application form. There's that one section, the personal statement, which is really your only opportunity to show passion for the subject where we're really looking for students to demonstrate as much to themselves, to be honest, as much as to the university, about why they really have a deep-rooted interest in the subject. You know, what I'm not expecting from students is for them to wake up every morning and go, oh, history, thank God. But what I'm looking for them is to have a bit of more interest in the subject than everyone else in their class. What have you read? What have you done? What have you been? Have you been to museums, exhibitions, etc.? And it's demonstrable passion that we're looking for. It's engagement. So I always suggest that in, in a personal statement, I'm looking for content, detail and evidence of the passion, not just exuberance. Paul, what are the key deadlines that students need to be aware of in the application process? UCAS has an amazing web page called Key Dates. 
So maybe bookmark that, that you've got it in place and you'll know all of these. So that's the first thing that I do. But I guess the major ones are 15th of October, that's the deadline by which students have to have completed an application if they're applying to Oxford, Cambridge, or if they're applying for medicine or dentistry. Now, if you're not applying to Oxbridge, medicine or dentistry, there's a later deadline, um, 15th of January. So you've got a little bit more time to complete your application. But one of the things I would say being the director of admission is don't leave it to a last minute. I received something like 15,000 applications on the six days before the deadline. That means if you apply 11 days before the deadline, in the pile of applications that I'm going to read, you can move yourself 11,000 places up the queue. So Anne-Marie, students asked me here, uh, what extracurricular activities uh, do universities like to see? And will these help uh, in your UCAS applications? Yeah, so I think it's a really important distinction between extracurricular activities, so things you do for fun that you enjoy, and supercurricular activities, which you may also enjoy but are related to your subject. So a really good example of this is uh, when I was at sixth form, I liked to play netball and that was an extracurricular activity, but actually I also liked to go along to book club and I wanted to um, do a degree in English, so that is supercurricular. It's about exploring my subject outside of the classroom. So one of the things that people often ask me in my job is whether we like well-rounded individuals. Now I'm going to tell you right now, we don't care whether you're a well-rounded individual or not. We like spiky individuals. It doesn't matter to me whether you're doing lots of things outside of school. What matters to me is that you're doing the things that are really related to your subject and that you're enjoying them because that tells me you're going to be a fantastic undergraduate student. I think that's a great way of describing Amory, spiky individuals. I think that's what we're looking for, people who've got that interest, that uh, passion for one particular or a couple of subjects. Okay, so which subjects and universities require you to sit admissions tests? So if you're applying to Oxford and Cambridge, uh, it is the case that for nearly all of the subjects, uh, you will need to sit some form of an admissions test. Uh, outside of that, there's, there's, there are very few admissions tests. Uh, there are two main ones in the area of medicine, dentistry, veterinary medicine. That's the BMAT, that's B-M-A-T, uh, and the UKCAT, U-K-C-A-T. Outside of that kind of healthcare environment, the other big one is perhaps the, uh, the LNAT test, which is a test that's used by about 10 leading law universities, but there are some others out there. So the best thing to do is to look on the UCAS website, but also the university's website, to see if you need to take one of these admissions tests. But I've got some really important advice in this area. Really, these are aimed at the top students, uh, and you may, you know, students listening to this may well be one of those top students who's getting A's, who's getting 90% right in every exam they sit. And these admissions tests are probably going to be the first time they sit an exam that they're not going to get 90% right. Uh, and so my advice is this, um, one, um, actually if you get about two thirds right, you're doing really well. So Anne-Marie, the students, one of the things that they're often really worried about, we've seen lots of questions here, all around the area of interviews. Um, universities will approach interviews in all different ways. Sometimes universities will interview on the basis of your personal statement, so a good way to prepare is to make sure you're familiar with your personal statement. As ever, do not mention texts or ideas in your personal statement that you're not familiar with, that you've not read. Really going into the interview, it's about preparation to make sure you feel as calm and as confident as possible. So find someone who you're not familiar with. Ask someone who actually um, is not very friendly with you and ask them if they'll interview you. Choose the teacher at school who perhaps, I don't know, taught you for GCSE and wasn't your most favourite teacher and ask them if they'll put you through your paces with an interview. Okay. Paul, 
What is clearing and adjustment and how does it work? So for most students, many students, they will get into their first choice university, their firm or their insurance choice university. Um, so if you've made your grades that are in your conditional offer, you will have got in. Um, but universities do sometimes, if you've narrowly missed by perhaps one grade, particularly if it's in a subject that's not entirely relevant, they may still let you in. But there will be, and it is a relatively small group of students, who are in the position where actually they've missed the offer of both their firm university and their insurance choice, and neither of those universities wishes to honour the place. And so that student's now uh, got lots of options open to them, but it does require some quite quick uh, thinking. And this is the process of clearing. So clearing is where universities who've still got spaces uh, will be looking for students uh, in that August period. So that's how we deal with clearing. Adjustments slightly different. So adjustments for a student who actually does have a place at a university, but let's say their teachers have been a bit tough on them and actually they've done much better than their predicted grades and actually done better than the offer that's made by the university. Here a student can start shopping around, holding on to their existing offer, but look for other universities where they might be able to get a place at. Well, what practical advice would you give for sort of on the day for students to think about? Um, no matter where you think you're going to land in terms of your grades, spend the day before uh, the results day really looking through what's available on clearing. Now there are some really practical things that I'd like to recommend to students. Um, the first thing is that you try and sleep the night before your results because it will be a long day. Wake up nice and early, go to school. I talk to lots of students who are ringing me uh, on that day and they're at home and they're on their own. You need to be around people who will support you through the process and most likely that is going to be one of your teachers. Now at this point I'm going to advise that you take a moment to breathe because if your results aren't as you uh, hoped they would be then you might be in a state of shock. So take 15 minutes, have a cup of tea and then you need to get on the phones. So it's really important that you start ringing the universities as soon as possible uh, and one of the top tips we say here at King's College London is to have two phones available to you on that day. Very often universities will try and ring you back to talk to you about the offer they'd like to make you uh, and sometimes you'll be on the phone to another uh, institution so two phones is a really practical thing. Some students will rush into accepting the first offer that they're made because they're so relieved but actually take some time, uh, maybe sit down again, another cup of tea, lots of tea on this day uh, and actually think through which one uh, is going to work best for you and talk it through with teachers and advisors uh, and then make that final decision about where you'd like to go. The final thing to say is that if it doesn't work out in clearing there is the option of taking the year out and going through the next cycle. So deep breaths, lots of tea, knowing when to get on the phone and knowing when to pause and reflect. Job done. In next week's episode, we'll be talking about culture and university life. That's all from our admissions agony aunts. If you want to hear more from Robert Eaglestone or any of the topics you've heard today, you can watch hundreds of debates and talks on the IAI player at iai.tv. Join us next time for another Uni Talks podcast. Good luck with your applications. So we've got a few questions that have been asked at Oxford and Cambridge interviews, and we thought we might ask you some. Okay. Uh, one of them is, is there a difference between innocence and naivety? Yes. <laughs> yes, I guess, uh, I, I guess there is. It's, it's, um, because uh, what, what is the difference? So 
innocence is like a little baby who just doesn't know. Whereas naivety, you're in a world where you sort of, you sort of do know, but choose not to find out what the detail is. Okay. Yeah. Is that it? Answer. That's the one. Um, if someone in sort of two thousand, maybe a thousand years time, found a tissue box, what do you think they would think about it? That's really interesting, isn't it? So, in in fact. Anything that's found tells you really weirdly about the world it comes from, even if it's a tissue box or a bit of comb or something. So it would tell them about what we thought was taboo and not taboo. Okay, so we can we have to deal with a gunk coming out of us. It tells us about um, they, it would tell them about our level of medical understanding that we have a gunk coming out of us, about our society how wasteful. You know, paper and tissues and cardboard and bits of plastic. Yeah, it would tell them about, about our, our, all sorts of bits of our daily life, wouldn't it? What we use, what resources we used for things that weren't that important. Trees, I guess. In next week's episode, we'll be joining Riley from Accrington as he discovers what bananas have to do with antimatter. He will travel to the University of Liverpool to speak to Professor of Physics Tara Shears. UniTalks is brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. The IAI's vision is to create a world where philosophy and big ideas are at the heart of society. The Brilliant Club is an award-winning charity. They work to increase the number of pupils from underrepresented backgrounds progressing to highly selective universities. UniTalks is produced by Irene Carter and Bridie Addison-Child at the IAI, with editing on this episode by Irene, and help from Anna Crisp, Helena Berry, Genevieve Marciniak, and Hannah Renton, and from the Brilliant Club, Michael Slavinsky, Jordana Knight, and Jade Hanley. Thanks for listening.